And it's like kind of the most important thing in Bitcoin. Like, ignore all this like lightning crap and Bitcoin core and like future soft forks and whatever. Like if we can't get mining decentralization right, we should just give up. Hello there, everyone. How are you all doing? Are you having a good week? Pretty sunny here in the UK. Loving it. Really hot. Over 30 degrees. Loving the sunshine. Anyway, we've been busy planning on our next live event. It's going to be in Sydney, Australia on September the 9th. We're working on some great guests, some gems in the bags. So you won't be disappointed if you are in Australia and you want to come. Please come to Sydney. Tickets are available at whatbitcoindid.com. Click on WBD Live. Anyway, welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by Iris Energy, the largest NASDAQ-listed Bitcoin miner using 100% renewable energy. I'm your host, Peter McCormack, and today I've got Matt Corallo back on the show. Now, I've known Matt for a long time. He was first on the show about four years ago, and he is such an asset to Bitcoin. You know, he's just a good guy, really like Matt. And I've been wanting to have him back on the show for a while, and while we're out in Miami a few weeks ago, we finally made it happen again. So in this show, we get an update on lightning development and where he sees the future of the Bitcoin industry, and also get into some of the limitations of lightning that we've seen come about due to what's been happening with ordinals. So always great to talk to Matt. I hope you enjoy this. If you've got any questions about this or anything else, you know where to get me. It's hello at whatbitcoindid.com. It's been a while. It has been. I can't remember the last time we spoke. I don't know. I remember the first time. It was in London, wasn't it? Ah, uh, yeah, I think so. Yeah, downstairs in some conference. Yeah, I don't remember what it was. Yeah, back and when you back when you were willing to change the color of your uh, website for me. We back when I was back when I was a big get for you. Well, you were a blue the blue mat. Yeah, we uh, we've only ever changed it once. Yeah, do you remember that? We, yeah. I don't, were you on it? Then? I don't think so, but I remember it happening. Yeah, it's the one blue one. We went from <laughs> pink to blue. But you don't have blue hair anymore. It's true. Have you not thought of going back? No, Star- too much, too much upkeep. It's a Starbucks haircut. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's good to see you, man. Lots been yeah. happening. We we haven't made a we haven't made a tech show in quite a while, have we? A long time. Yeah, so it's all on you. All right, to well, update us. All. I'll try. You looking forward to this week? Yeah, it's going to be really good to see lots of people. Uh, you know, got a living in SF. I don't get out enough. So yeah, how's that? <laughs> not enough by the Bitcoiners way? there anymore. SF's great, but there's not enough Bitcoiners there anymore. Uh, a lot of the Bitcoiners have left. Uh, just, you know, after kind of the the VC world shifted to like, we can make more money in things that aren't Bitcoin. And then a lot of the people who either were into Bitcoin either moved to New York or Austin. And then the people who were into other cryptocurrency stuff stayed in SF. And there's not that huge of a Bitcoin crowd there anymore. Do they still have the meetup? There is still a meetup there. It's gotten smaller. It's like 20 people usually now. That was a good meetup. It was a huge meetup. Yeah. yeah. I've been to, uh, I've been, I went to a few times. Always good crowd. Yeah. yeah. Uh, a lot of those folks have moved to New York. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a good meetup as well. Yeah, New York's great. We get more we get more at our meetup at the football club. Come on, man. You're San Francisco. We're Bedford. <laughs> we're we're trying. We're going to grow it back up. You should be kicking our ass. Right, man. Look, loads to catch up on. Stuff that I don't understand that you'll be able to explain to me. Um, we should definitely start with ordinals because that's been the fight of the last <laughs> year that came out uh-huh. of nowhere. Yeah. Um, uh, it kind of, um, these Bitcoin topics now, they kind of tend to, uh, they kind of tend to operate like, almost like the left and right divide. When there's a topic, I'm like, okay, I know what Udi and Eric are going to think, and I know what the Maxi is going to think, right. and then they like douche it out. Right. And 
Ordinals appears to be one of those, and I'm I got really mixed feelings about it. Yeah, yeah. I, I think I, I I try to separate it out between like there's I mean there's a few parts of it, and I try to kind of separate out how I feel based on the different parts of it. Right. So there's like just the core like we're doing NFTs on Bitcoin. It's like, yeah, that's not really what it's for. But if you really want to do collectibles, go knock yourself out, uh, whatever. Um, then there's the part of it where it's like, we're putting images on the chains. Like that sucks, but man, you're paying miners and we really got to pay the miners. So I, I, we have to pay the miners in a sustainable way. And it's not clear to me, you know, the ordinals thing, might have legs. Certainly, this like BRC twenty crap is clearly like inflated right now. There's uh, clearly some people pushing up that market, and it's kind of Ponzanomics kind of crap. It's not going to stick around. So I'm not like, you know, oh yeah, we're paying the miners with this like token issuance crap on Bitcoin. It's like no, we're not because it's not going to stick around. It's not mm. sustainable. It doesn't really help in any way. But the like ordinal stuff, maybe a little bit. I don't know. We'll see. Well, the NFT thing, I expect to follow the same path as NFTs on Ethereum in that there's like this fad period that people are buying, trading, and then once the market kind of dies out and people realize they've lost a bunch of money, they're done with it. Yeah, I think it'll definitely cut down a lot and and we'll see where it goes there. Um, I do worry about all this stuff and how it might impact MEV on Bitcoin. Um, I guess we, <laughs> we have to separate out the like MEV versus MEVIL. Um, it's like MEV is just like, well, we have to pay miners. It's like the, the minor extractable, minor extractable value, which is the transaction fees are great. And then there's the like mevil of, uh, you can, if you are a miner and you can take the transactions that you're putting in a block and reorder them in some way or select different transactions and you can make substantially more money than just looking at the uh, transaction fees, then that's really dangerous. Right. So like, uh, how, you know, what, I've worked a lot on uh, decentralizing mining. Yep. Um, so with Stratum V2 uh, designs, the, the goal being that a normal average miner can run their own full node, select the transactions they're going to mine, and still mine with a pool, but the pool is just handling the, the reward splitting and the payouts. Um, and if... If such a miner, like a normal miner, just you know, running their own full node, selecting their transactions, can't just run Bitcoin Core and get a competitive high-value block out of it, then that's really problematic because now they need to they some like you know podunk miner who might only have however many machines has to go hire full-time engineers, you know, pay somebody, you know, probably somebody super competent. So they're going to be paying somebody, you know, $150,000, $200,000 a year to design, you know, how do we select the best transactions in the block and get the most value out of our block? You know, they can't afford to do that. And so then they're like, if they want to be a competitive miner, suddenly now they have to mine with a pool again. They have to have a pool doing that work because the pool can afford to hire these people. And and this is what we see in Ethereum, right? Where like Ethereum uh, did this split where... Uh, you have the people producing the blocks and the like stakers and whatever, but then we have uh, because they understood that these that this was super expensive to do mev, they they separated it out and they said like we're going to have these like competitive mev marketplace thing. Except it never turned into a competitive marketplace. There's like two or three companies who select all of the transactions that get into the blocks and can censor and can do whatever, 
And that's where Meevil is a problem. It's evil Mev. It's really evil and really harms the censorship resistance of the system. So what's the solution? How do you get away from that? I mean, there's not a clear solution. Um, you know, don't build these protocols. Don't use these protocols that allow reordering, right? And and just ordinals doesn't itself have that problem necessarily. Uh, ordinals which uh, encourage people to you know want to be the millionth minted NFT or something that's a problem. Don't encourage that. Don't pay for that. Don't want that. Um, uh, ordinal marketplaces, decentralized marketplaces actually also often have this problem. Like what if someone fat fingers, right? If I'm, uh, if I'm selling my NFT or I'm selling some asset or whatever, and I fat finger it and I, you know, sell my thing that's worth millions for a penny. Well, all right. Now it's like a, a decentralized marketplace, you know, Bob's going to try to buy it, but it doesn't matter what Bob tries to do. The miner is going to be the one who claims it, right? As long as the miner is running this kind of software and has invested a lot of time and resources into designing software to monitor for these cases, uh, then they're, they're going to be the ones who claim it and they're going to make a bunch of money doing that. Um, and so actually, ironically for, ordinals and stuff like that, you really want to prefer centralized marketplace. Um, not these kind of trustless ones. You, you know, you, you can build a trustless one that doesn't have this problem. So where you don't necessarily have to like deposit something and then like trust them to, to with your money. Um, but the like pure decentralized ones where you're just posting bids and ask to, bids and asks as like partially signed Bitcoin transactions, uh, they often have this like evil issue. And like, we don't really want to encourage that. Um, so it's not something I'm worried about is like, oh, we're really screwed right now. It's something that I worry could be a problem as these kinds of protocols get adopted if we don't do it right. And so it's kind of on the tech world to be aware of these issues, to consider these issues when designing systems. Um, and it's also, you know, when, when people say like, this is a problem, this has a MEV issue, uh, this introduces MEV on Bitcoin. You know, if you see that as a user, you should be running away. You shouldn't want to use this, even if it claims it's all kinds of great and decentralized marketplace and whatever. That doesn't make it good. That actually, you know, puts Bitcoin's decentralization at risk. So, what what is the difference between an NFT and an ordinal? Because I thought they were the same thing. Yeah, it's semantics almost. It's like ordinal, like. Every Satoshi is technically an ordinal and yeah. it just has a number assigned to it. And then you can take a, an image and assign the uh, the image to a given Satoshi. Right. And that makes it an inscription, which is kind of an NFT, but the ordinals are also NFTs, but they don't have images. They're just like every Satoshi has a serial number. I don't know. I People collect things. I still, I, like, I still haven't fully understood the new ordinals thing. In that, it is a separate protocol that sits outside of Bitcoin that basically numbers all the satoshis. Yeah, from start to finish. That's it. So you can basically, uh, you might want to buy a certain number, or you might want to buy something attached to it, and it, it, it kind of the argument. One of the arguments against it is kind of destroys the fungibility of Bitcoin. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, potentially, I. I, I don't think people, uh, so A, the ordinals thing never took off, right? The, the serial number itself, like I want to buy the million Satoshi or the billion Satoshi or whatever, never took off. Um, and for good reason. It's hard to find the specific Satoshi. It's kind of like why it's not whatever. Um, 
people just didn't seem to want to collect those. I don't. I, I guess I don't understand the collection psyche, so I can't yeah. comment as yeah. to why. But people didn't want to collect those. People did want to collect images assigned to them, and that's that's a whole lot better from a like fungibility perspective, or uh, it's a whole lot better from. Yeah, fungibility perspective and also kind of a, a, a evil perspective and all these other things is like, I'm just going to like attach an image to a Satoshi I already have versus like, I'm going to like go comb through my wallet and start picking out Satoshis and like using those for something. You know, one one is much more separate. One's much more separate. And it's like, uh, you know, I'm, I'm just going to build this protocol on top and on the side and we're going to like play around with our images and whatever. And one's like, very like I'm gonna go scan through all my wallets and I'm gonna like every transaction I receive I'm gonna like try to see whether there's something that's worth more or less that gets into a real fungibility issue right mm. versus the the images and the nfts well no one's gonna like accidentally send you an image or if they do probably it's worthless and you don't care so you don't you know the the concern with fungibility is in part like what happens if fungibility is broken you know there's all kinds of downstream issues, but one of the most immediate issues would be that suddenly your wallet software needs to care about the individual Satoshis, right? So if there's like, uh, you know, if chain analysis becomes broadly used so so much so that like certain Satoshis become like worthless, that is a huge issue because now you as a wallet software author or you as someone using Bitcoin, well, now you have to go look at the transaction you received and see whether any of your Satoshis are worth less because chain analysis has said no. Same thing applies to the like ordinal numbering thing, right? Where like now there's all this complexity and mental overhead with like, you know, is one of your Satoshis worth more because it has some clever serial number? Less of an issue for the images, right? Where it's like no one's gonna accidentally send you their NFT image thing, so you don't need to like do this kind of scanning. Okay, so but an NFT is attached to a specific Satoshi. Yeah. So if I didn't know I had one, say somebody sent me, I don't know, a Bitcoin, one of the Satoshis in there had an NFT in it. Could I receive that without knowing it? Of course, because yeah, my wallet. If I then send you know, half a Bitcoin to Danny, and that's got that NFT in there. Am I paying a higher minor fee because it exists? No. Okay, so... No. So the image is like a one-time thing. Okay. It's tagged to the Satoshi, and then it just follows the Satoshi through the history, but uh, it, it, it after that point, there's no evidence on chain. There's nothing different on the chain about that Satoshi. Okay, so when you are saying... Again, I don't understand this. When you are sending an NFT... Why is the, I mean, like I know it's some, probably something to do with file size, but why is the, why, why am I paying a minor fee? What's actually happening with that image within the protocol? They're literally just putting it on the chain. Um, but how, so, when you say they're putting it on the chain, is it the, you know, is it the, what is it? What's going on the chain? Yeah, so so they take the transaction uh, with, you know, I don't know the exact specifics, but basically like, you know, you take your Satoshi that you want to tag, and you put that, you know, you, you spend that. And as a part of spending it, you also put some additional metadata in the transaction. You also like add a bunch of data uh, where the signature goes, right? So there's space where you can just add additional data to the transaction. Um, it doesn't impact the transaction in any way, it just makes it bigger. And thus, of course, you have a, a higher minor fee. Um, and you just pad that data with the image. You know, you literally just take whatever your image is that you want and you just shove it in the transaction. Uh, in right next to the signature, and then you know you have your normal Bitcoin transaction with a 
ton of extra data and it becomes a huge transaction and has to pay a big mining fee, but that's kind of it. Other than that, it's a normal transaction. And so do I have to have a specific wallet to receive that? Yeah, you have to, so you're, you know, when, when you're creating that, you have to use specific software to construct this transaction in the correct format. Um, and then from there on out, if you want to maintain that image, that NFT Satoshi, you have to have specific software that, you know, is aware of this protocol so that when it constructs a transaction, it doesn't accidentally send it to somebody else. So you probably just have a separate wallet, which is yeah. just those ones. So you could have 20 Satoshis in there, but it's 20 images. Right. And that's wallet can maybe display what yeah. these are. And Yeah, yeah those uh, the NFT stuff is like completely segmented into a separate wallet. Doesn't, you know, you're not going to accidentally spend that because you're just going to keep it in your like NFT wallet. Can you ever see a scenario where you would buy one? No. I've no. got no real interest in it. The thing that I've yeah. never really understood, though, is like you you can't inscribe every single Satoshi because you can't send a single Satoshi, right? Is, is, the, right. is the minimum amount like 500 and something Satoshis? Yeah. Um, it, yeah, I mean, you're like inscribing a specific Satoshi within that it's like transaction. Yeah. Okay. But so you can never get like, does it not happen where people sometimes inscribe two Satoshis that would almost fall into like one batch of like a 500 Satoshi transaction. Yeah, I mean, it, there's like some protocol for deciding which of the Satoshis within that number is inscribed. Right. Um, I, yeah, I don't know exactly. It doesn't matter. Like you pick an arbitrary one basically, yeah. but the protocol defines a way to pick exactly this is the one Satoshi that got inscribed mm. of the batch. Yeah, I, I, I just can't see where I'd buy one. I could see where I'd sell them. You could, like with the football team, you could do one for each of the players and... Yeah. You could do that and raise money for the players. And and so then I, I think if I did that, you know, it'd be great. You raise some money for the football team, whatever. But do you end up, do you, you piss a bunch of people off as well, don't you? I mean, they're valid transactions, but I just don't care about them. I, I don't yeah. care about them, but but at the same time, the flip side, if I don't care about them, but I, but I care that other people want them. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a different way of fundraising, I guess. But. Yeah. But it, but I'm, I'm like questioning, is is it, bad for bitcoin i don't think so. i know yeah. they're valid well some people think it is that's but, the point but you're not breaking the rules and you pay miners like of course of course but you know you're not breaking the rules by putting certain images on chain but it's but it's, is it ethically right mm. it's yeah. weird it's not really the purpose of the system, yeah. but it doesn't break the system in any meaningful way. I mean, there are, again, you know, like like we talked about, there are ways it could creep into the system and cause problems, but the kind of naive and common usage doesn't really. So, and who cares? Can, can you wipe uh, an inscription and replace it with a new one? I uh, I think you can replace it with a new one. I don't think you can like remove it. I think once a Satoshi is inscribed, it is inscribed. But you could, for example, replace it with like a white image or something. But it's not inscribed in the Bitcoin protocol, right? It's in in the ordinals protocol. Right, in whatever this protocol is that interprets the blockchain in some different way. So strictly speaking, could you have multiple ordinal protocols each inscribing them separately? You can, and there are other ones. So there's one that uh, whatever ordinals backwards is, I don't know how to read it, and it just defines a different ordering scheme, right? Because all ordinals is is just like an ordering scheme of how we assign numbers to Satoshis. Well, we can just define a different one. We can define a backwards one, in fact, and someone has done this and implemented it. But and you can go use that. But couldn't somebody do two, two forward ones? Sure. Yeah, so There's, you could have multiple. There are infinity possible protocols for how you could number all the Satoshis. Right, okay. But the only thing that's really happening in Bitcoin is you're just adding data to a 
right and, and and just you know without inscribing you're not even adding any data right if you're just assigning serial numbers to every satoshi there's yeah. no data. There's nothing new about it. You're just giving them all a number. Yeah, because you know there are certain things in life I wouldn't buy, but I would sell outside of this, right? You know, you run up certain businesses. Yeah. No. You know, and I'm just, I'm not gonna do it. I mean, people are gonna be listening. Going, yeah, he's gonna do put Ralph Buffett ordinals, but it is quite a cool way to raise money for players, isn't it? I mean, you just like piggybacking the Bitcoin community thinking they might spend more like more Satoshis than they would pounds, I guess. Yeah, it goes to that point though. It's like, um, I remember I was in a meeting in, um, it was in uh, LA. It was, the, it was the guy who died about a year ago, the 50-year-old. He was involved in, ah, oh, what shit coin. But he also involved a company that made skins for mm. um, computer games. Yeah. Mm. And he was telling me about, there was one game and there was a, I don't know, like a sword or a gun skin and it was like 32,000. Oh yeah, that's a huge market. Yeah, yeah, this guy bought it. And I, and I was like, what? Yeah. And he said, listen, do you play golf? And I said, occasionally. I said, but my dad does. He said, does your dad love golf? He's like, yeah. I said, so he's got a nice set of clubs? I said, yeah, actually he has. He's like, well, your dad wants to play golf and he goes to the golf club and he gets the best set of clubs that he yeah. wants it's like tennis players some will go and they're not great tennis players but they're going to spend a thousand two thousand dollars on a yeah. tennis racket because that's them he said this is their tennis racket it's mm. just in the digital world yeah people want collectibles yeah, like, yeah. there's nothing like there's nothing wrong with it i don't buy collectibles but there's nothing wrong with it i mean people have bought baseball cards for as, i mean you're talking about like selling pictures of the players it's no different than baseball baseball cards yeah. people have been buying those things for decades well, I, I do it with trainers. I've talked about it on the show. I do it with trainers. I've got like 600 pairs of trainers. Right. Like I collect trainers and I love it. Um, and and, and it's a, that's my thing. So I'm, I'm, I'm reticent to be critical of people doing their thing when it's what they like. Like Scarlett had this game, what was it called? Roblox, my mm -hmm. daughter. And she would buy like a, I don't know, a giraffe skin and she would run yeah. around on a little giraffe. She loved it. Yeah. Um, and so I'm just thinking if there are people who like that and want to collect that, <laughs> the guy from Minneapolis. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. What was his name? Ed, um, um, Edgar. Edgar. Yeah, he came across yeah, from Bedford. Edgar. He might be like, I'm going to buy all the fucking players. <laughs> so, yeah, interesting. Yeah. Well, I, look, I'm, I'm, I'm not too bothered. I like the miners getting paid. Yeah, big fan of that. Yeah. And, uh, and it's flushed out a lot of bugs and lightning, so that's <laughs> great. Well, yeah, we're coming to that. Um, is there any use case for ordinals beyond images? Is there... Could it be tickets to a concert? Could it be, you know, could you turn up and just flash up your thing and here's a ticket and, you know, if you can't go, you can send that ordinal to somebody else? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's been a million attempts at people trying to come up with different uses for NFTs and tokens and whatever um, beyond the kind of collectible use case. Uh, and, and we can look to Ethereum and, and that space for, for those kinds of things. But almost none of them have really taken off uh, right. because most of them don't really have a compelling reason right yeah. it's like okay well you, you issued a ticket well guess what like yeah ticket masters like absurd you know overcharge and they charge however much to to resell a ticket and it's it's obscene and then you know your your blockchain fees 10 bucks and it's all the same at the end anyway so like why did you put it on a blockchain you're not yeah, adding any fair. value um so i think it, it is it is a little challenging to come up with with something where you really do want that kind of more trustless ownership. And that is part of why the uh, Ordinal's inscriptions NFTs took off is because unlike the like Ethereum NFTs, 
where it's just basically like, hey, here's a, a, a URL to an image. And then, you know, you claim that you own really the URL, not the image. The inscription stuff's actually like, here's the image. It's on the blockchain. Right. Um, which is both wasteful, like it's like, you know, a ton of extra data on the chain, but also really compelling to people who want to collect an NFT and really own it and say, like, I really own this image. It's actually on the chain and no one can take that from me. Yeah, because if um, it's on the URL and the URL dies or right. it goes... It, Which yeah. has been a problem for many NFTs. Like, uh, FTX went down. Uh, when FTX got taken down, a bunch of the Solana NFTs died because they were hosted on a server ran by FTX. <laughs> and so a bunch of the Solana <laughs> NFTs disappeared and all of a sudden were just 404s and now you own a 404 page. Yeah, off the back Although, is, weirdly, that might be more valuable now because it's quite Yeah, funny. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's like an FTX seized by the government 404 page. I <laughs> yeah. mean, that's compelling. <laughs> this show is brought to you by Iris Energy. Now, Iris is the largest NASDAQ-listed Bitcoin miner using 100% renewable energy. Their strategy is to target markets with low-cost, excess renewable energy, and they build their own highly efficient Bitcoin data centers. They are led by a seasoned management team with a track record of success across renewables, infrastructure, and digital assets. And Danny and I met them recently in Canada and were super impressed with Iris Energy and their values, which align with us, so they're a great fit for what Bitcoin did and you, the listeners. Now, we are going to be working with Iris Energy on everything from the podcast to films to live events, and they're either sponsoring my football team, Rail Bedford. So we're really happy to be working with such a forward-thinking and sustainable Bitcoin mining company. Now, if you want to find out more, please head over to irisenergy.co, which is I-R-I-S-E-N-E-R-G-Y.co. Next up today, we have Ledon. From savings accounts to personal loans and even mortgages, Ledon's financial services enable Bitcoiners to experience the benefits of their holdings today without selling their Bitcoin. Ledon has a robust risk management strategy and always prioritizes safeguarding clients' assets with no DeFi yield farming. And Ledon only supports Bitcoin and USDC, two of the highest quality and most liquid assets in the industry. They are also dedicated to transparency and are the first digital asset lending company to complete a proof of reserves attestation, which they re-verify every six months. With multilingual support on standby 24-7, Ledon is there to support all your needs. And not only is Ledon a sponsor, I am also a customer of theirs. Now, if you want to find out more, please head over to ledon.io, which is L-E-D-N Next up, we have Ledger. Now, Ledger is the world's leader in Bitcoin security, and it's the best way for you to own and secure your private keys. If you are still holding Bitcoin on an exchange or with a custodian, it might be time for you to take your Bitcoin security a little more seriously, because remember, not your keys, not your Bitcoin. Now, Ledger hardware wallets paired with the Ledger Live app are the easiest and safest way for you to start managing your private keys. You can send and sign your Bitcoin transactions with full transparency in the Ledger Live app, and honestly, it couldn't be easier. I've been a Ledger customer since 2017, and I'm still using the same Nano S I bought back then. Now, if you want to find out more or purchase a hardware wallet from Ledger, then please head over to shop.ledger.com, which is S-H-O-P dot L-E-D-G-E-R dot com. Also today, we have the Human Trafficking Institute. Now, according to the International Labour Organization, there are approximately 49.6 million human trafficking victims in the world today. And in May last year, I spoke to Victor Boutris from the Human Trafficking Institute, which has a unique and proven model I want to tell you about. Now, the Human Trafficking Institute exists to decimate modern-day slavery at its source by empowering police and prosecutors to stop traffickers. 
They work inside criminal justice systems in Uganda and Belize and provide the embedded experts with world-class training, investigative resources and evidence-based research necessary to free victims. Since the Human Trafficking Institute began their work in Uganda and Belize, they've helped their partners to free over 2,300 victims of trafficking and arrest over 1,500 suspected traffickers. In Uganda, there was a 417% increase in successful prosecutions of human traffickers within the first two years of their work there. Now, the work they do is incredible, and it's something I want to get behind and support, so I want to tell you about it today, and hopefully you can support it too. I've given them a Bitcoin. Hopefully you can make a donation too, because Bitcoiners have the potential to make an incredible impact by donating to them. So please do visit traffickinginstitute.org forward slash Bitcoin to learn more about what they do and help fight against human trafficking. Yeah, it does. Uh, you said it's flushed out a bunch of bugs in uh, Lightning, but it's also, is it fair to say, exposed some challenges, weaknesses in Lightning? Um, yes and no. I mean, uh, certainly it's always been the case. Like, you know, when you're sending one millisatoshi in Lightning, obviously that's not enforceable. Like, it's under a Satoshi that could never appear on chain. Similarly, if you're sending 10 Satoshis in Lightning, it's also equivalently not enforceable. Like, you know, we mentioned the dust limit. You can't send less than 500 and something Bitcoin uh, Satoshis, 500 and something Satoshis, uh, without getting a miner to kind of directly incorporate your transaction. Um, and so, you know, we can't enforce those in Lightning either. If, if you're sending under some threshold, then it's not enforceable on chain, but it'll still be reflected in your total balance. So, uh, you know, it is the case that with Lightning, you know, as fees goes up, that that number also goes up, right? If 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 it takes ten dollars to go to chain, you know, are you really going? Should you really go to the chain for nine dollars in uh, in HTLCs that are expiring or something? You probably shouldn't. Um, and so now those like $9 payments become kind of pseudo unenforceable, right? They're not something you're going to go to chain over. Um, if your counterparty misbehaves, you might lose. If you had, you know, $9 in flight in pending transactions, you might lose them. But once they clear, once they've completed, you won't lose them. That, that's a completed transaction. And so, uh, you know, there was this weird thing like some people were like oh yeah like you know every lightning transaction is completely enforceable from like the moment it sends to the moment it it uh, you get the the pre-image and that's not really true it's more like once it fully completes but like that happens too so yeah, it on, doesn't really we, matter can we can we back up a sec sorry just so i'm clear uh we're talking a uh, difference between custodial and non-custodial lightning right no, even for non even for non custodial, right? Like you know, there, there's so in custodial, I can send one sat. Right in custodial, you can send one sat. Even in non custodial lightning, you can send a thousandth of a sat. Um, but it doesn't, you know. Certainly, when you close the channel eventually and you go to chain, that thousandth of a sat is just going to disappear. But if you send a thousand of those thousandths of a sat, then you'll actually get that sat on chain at the end yeah. of the day. And that will change your balance. And so, you know, similarly for again, when we're talking about dust, like if that trend, if that if that payment is still pending and you close the channel while it's pending, you might lose it. But if that payment completes, it's a completed payment. So you, what you're saying is, if there's a channel open and I've only done one transaction, that's nine dollars, and when I close the channel, fees are ten dollars. That you, I don't get that. You've wasted that. Yeah. Um, 
And on top of that, if it was still pending, so like if you're <laughs> even worse, right? If, if I send a, a $10 payment on Lightning and fees are, uh, you know, 11 or whatever, and that, that $10 payment's still pending when I close the channel, which has been a problem mm. due to some issues in Lightning implementation, due to some bugs um, over the last week, uh, then not only do you pay that, you know, $10 in fee or $11 in fee, but you also lose that $10 payment. Um, so you lose both. And so that's, that's a concern, but in general, you know, you, you just limit the amount that you have pending at any one time and then you don't care, right? Like you, you have some risk threshold and you say like, I'm willing to have, you know, $50 pending at one time. And then once those clear, I can send another $50 and that's not a problem. It's just like, if we, if we close while this thing is pending, I might lose it. And so, you know, that's always been a risk control that, that lightning notes have had that's been in the protocol since day one. It's just becoming more relevant now, and so it's been like uh, it's an issue some of our users had actually on LDK is like we had that risk threshold turned all the way down, and it was like the default was very low, um, and so we had some people show up like I can't send payments at all, and we're like yeah you're exceeding your risk threshold, you should turn up your risk threshold, <laughs> uh, so we had to change the defaults there, um, but yeah I mean like it it has exposed this like lightning is not perfect and it has these risk thresholds in it and it has some risk associated with payments that are not yet completed and people kind of had swept that under the rug or ignored it and it's like no it's there and it's it's really there and you have to be aware of it um but i don't think it's like you know you you asked like did it did it expose shortcomings in lightning and i don't think that's kind of a shortcoming because again once that payment completes it's completed right even if you sent you know one sat like once it completes, it's completed, and if you close the channel now, you will have one set more than you would have otherwise. Um, and so I don't. I, I think like it, it's known, it's a risk, but it doesn't affect the eventual outcome and the normal outcome. Yeah, but so let's look at a scenario where we get into a permanent high fee environment. Uh, we had Michael Saylor in here a few days ago, and yeah, he put a wild kind of idea out there. But he said, look, people are used to if you buy a multi-million dollar painting you're used to paying a commission which is 10 percent and you know if you buy a house a 20 million dollar house there might be a come a day where someone's buying and then 20 million dollars of bitcoin and they might be paying i mean I, I think he's wrong but anyway hundreds of thousands in fees i think the kind of the main point in that is if we get into a permanently high fee environment imagine an on-chain fee was a thousand pound or a thousand dollars even a hundred dollars and that's kind of the average, and you kind of get away from that. Have we created an environment where there's certainly an environment where some people just can't afford to use the base chain? That's fine. Mm -hmm. But can we get people onto Lightning without them having to use the base chain? Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think that's definitely the like non-custodial, mobile, small value Lightning becomes a concern. Um, and I do, th and and you know, a lot of those people get priced out. Um, you know, I, I think there are, uh, it's kind of the best we can do now, right? Yeah. So, like, we want to, I always view the, like, custodial, non-custodial question as, like, custodial will always win. Custodial is always going to be a better user experience. It's yeah. always going to be just easier to use for everyone. There's costs associated with it regulatorily, but aside from the regulatory costs, it's just going to be better. 
So my job is a software engineer and, and our job is kind of the Bitcoin community and the Bitcoin uh, engineering community is to improve non-custodial as much as we can to get it as close as we can to the custodial user experience. We'll never beat it, but we can get as close as we can. And, and maybe with the uh, regulatory costs, we can actually beat it. Um, that is an iterative process, right? Historically, uh, the like non-custodial experience has just been on chain. It's been like a 10 minute transaction time. It's been basically unusable. I mean, it, like 10 minutes for a transaction to even show up and it's still pending is like unusable garbage user experience, right? Um, with Lightning, we've improved it a lot and we've improved both the scalability of it and the, the instant transaction times, which is great, huge win, but there are still steps to go for scalability, right? So there's, uh, whether you do channel factories, um, there's potentially other designs around uh, covenants and payment pools. Um, so there's a lot in the future that we need to add to uh, make lightning and lightning-like systems better. And I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of gray area between custodial and non-custodial that's largely unexplored. Can, can you and ever it, be non-custodial in Lightning without having a base chain transaction? Or are you always... I, 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 think, I think that's where this gray area comes in. So I think, there's, I think there's a lot of gray area between custodial and non-custodial. Yeah. Where you have, you know... I mean, it, there's some of it that's been explored. There's kind of like the, the liquid model where it's just like a, a multi-sig and now there's like these, these uh, e-cash mints, the like cashew and... Um, Fediment. Uh, Fediment that, that are also kind of multi-sig. So it's kind of this multi-sig model uh, that's exciting. But then I think there's other models. There's like uh, payment pools and uh, um, uh, lightning channel factories where you kind of have like maybe you get together with four people and you collaboratively own a UTXO. And then, okay. like, with channel factories, you can be like, all right, we're, we're going to have the four of us own this UTXO, and then we can, like, dynamically create and reshuffle the liquidity between the channels that we all create within this UTXO without ever going to, without ever creating on-chain transactions. Um, and I think there's similar models where we can also take another step towards custodial, where we can say, like, okay, we're going to do something like that, but currently the problem with those designs is like everyone who owns that UTXO collaboratively has to be online at the same time to update it. That's obviously a concern. So like, can we can we do better? Can we say like, all right, uh, we're going to have a kind of sort of custodial entity that manages the UTXO, but then at any point, any one uh, individual who like has ownership rights to it can go to chain and unilaterally withdraw their funds from their shared UTXO, and they can like go off and 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 leave, or maybe they're being censored, or or maybe the the if that centralized entity misbehaved, they then people could leave and and uh, take money from them or or whatever. They could be punished, like in Lightning, right? Where like if you misbehave, you broadcast an old state, you lose your money. Um, and so I think there's a lot of models like that that have yet to be explored um, and certainly yet to be implemented. There's, you know, people have some ideas for how to do some of these. There's new ideas coming out for how to do other ones, let alone getting to implementation years down the road. But I don't think it's fair to say that like, like Lightning today, yeah, if you're talking about a $100 transaction fee and you're someone who maybe only has, you know, $500, you're not going to have an on-chain Lightning UTXO, 
But I don't think that means that you can't use lightning and lightning-like systems. We just have to build different ways to get people into those systems. And like multi-party UTXO ownership is going to be figured out. It's complicated, um, and it's going to be really complicated to implement. But I think there are directions that we'll get to by the time we need it. Yeah. I mean, I almost think if I open up a lightning channel, I kind of want it almost semi-permanently open. Yeah, you know that's my lightning wallet now. What reason do I want to close it? Right, and I think that's how it will certainly be. I mean, you know, I mentioned like in the last week or two, we've seen a lot of bugs show up in lightning implementations that have caused uh, forced closure that maybe shouldn't have. Okay, Um, and those are things we need to fix. Those are things that that certainly the LDK team has been working on. Uh, improving, you know, uh, improving some defaults, um, changing policy so that we're less of aggressive, less aggressive about force close. Um, and then there's some bugs and other implementations that we're like working around. We have like uh, workarounds to like if the other implementation gets stuck, making sure that we can like unstick the protocol um, and you know trying to help other implementations debug their issues as well. Um, so that's an area that, that needs improvement and you know is being improved upon. Um, but but yeah, I mean, aside from aside from just bugs, like I agree with you. Like you generally, especially if you're a consumer and you just have a lightning channel, you're never gonna move that around. It's, it's really only people who are like redoing their channels to move around where the liquidity is in the network. So we're really just talking about layers of trust models. Yeah, we really, you know, Bitcoin needs to evolve into a many shades of gray. Right? Yeah, it's it's historically been white or black and. You know, we're slowly starting to fill in some of the grays, but we need way more shades. What do you think of things like, what do you think of Fediment? I mean, yeah, I mean, I think these kinds of models are really cool. This kind of like multi-sig model. Again, we need shades of grain. It's a really cool shade. Um, the only question for all of these, I think once you get into the shades of gray, the question very quickly becomes what are the regulatory burdens and, and how expensive is it to comply with whichever rules we need to comply with and often how expensive is it to com- to figure out what rules we need to comply with? Yeah. <laughs> like how, how much do we have to pay the lawyers to tell us which rules we need to pay attention to and what we, what we can get away with? Um, and so I think especially for the, the multi-sig models that comes into play where you're talking about you know e-cash schemes, like, you know, what is, I, I think like the Fediment folks have always kind of argued more like community banks, right? Where it's like everyone knows each other. And so, you know, you don't necessarily have a, a heavy regulatory burden because you actually know your users and you can, you could argue certain things which might or might not hold legal water. I don't know. I'm not a lawyer. Um, but, you know, they'd also be awesome if we could like really scale them, but probably for regulatory reasons, you can't. Um, and so we'll really see where it goes. That's why I quite like what Cali's doing, because he's basically ignoring the regulatory thing. He's just created a protocol that works now. You can use it and he's... Right. I mean, yeah, that's that's obviously the first step, but Bitcoin has a long history of engineers building stuff and then users ignoring it. True. Um, so, you know, there, there does need to be a something that leads to people really using it. And yeah. it, it'll be interesting to see what, how adoption looks for that kind of thing. And I mean, like we've seen it with like Liquid and Rootstock and like mm. Liquid has no users. Yeah. Like they invested how much money into building this thing. 
it's a cool multi-sig model. It has better privacy properties, but nobody really wants to use it. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So I, I, I think in a high fear environment, something like Liquid might make a comeback. Maybe um, people are quicker to move to Litecoin. Like people just, you know, if you're really doing a normal end user transaction, you're just going to move to something else that's like. But I, I know, think some, I some think shitcoin that I think that's in, in an environment where we've got temporary high fees. I'm thinking more permanent high fees. You know, if you could, uh, I don't know, park a Bitcoin within uh, Liquid, and you know, you could send Liquid Bitcoin around to people. I, I see, I see, I see that could be a helpful scenario. I think you know, I mean, we we've seen this across the cryptocurrency space how many times we're like one chain will start with low fees. They'll like you know their their whole reason for being is like, ah, the fees on Bitcoin are too high. We've created this chain. It's going to scale better. We're going to have low fees. And then either it goes nowhere or fees on Bitcoin go up. People start using it and suddenly it has high fees too. And then people move on to the next thing. Right. And so you really have to look at like what, you know, what are people trying to accomplish for having this Bitcoin, right? Are they trying to have this Bitcoin to actually spend? Are they trying to do economic activity? They're just going to dump it and go use Litecoin or whatever. And they'll just, you know, they'll hold Bitcoin on Binance. And then when they want to transact, they'll buy some Litecoin and they'll go use it. Or they'll buy some Monero and they'll go, whatever it is. Versus, you know, is someone like trying to trade Bitcoin? They're trying to like, or maybe they're trying to like invest in Bitcoin. They're, they're worried about the Fed, whatever. They, they've bought a bunch of Bitcoin. They have a stack. And then maybe tr- they transact occasionally. Again, they they might just have it in a custodial service. They might, the, the part that they want to transact, they'll keep it in a custodial service. They'll use Litecoin, they'll use whatever. And then just like that investment, they don't care what the fee is. You know, $100 fee on their million dollar investments, not a huge deal. And so I don't, I think in practice, we haven't really seen that outcome where people are like, oh yeah, I want to like switch to Liquid or I want to switch to using Lightning. In general, people just kind of like, um, um, Bit Refill had had a long Twitter thread. Uh, Matt Allberg, their I think head of data, um, mm-hmm. had a long Twitter thread, basically, and anal- uh, uh, doing some analysis on this, and basically concluded like you know during high fee spikes, they're just you know their data, which is more kind of consumer wanting to use cryptocurrency for transactions, less invest in cryptocurrency kind of users. Um, really doesn't show an uptick in Lightning during high-fee environments. It shows an uptick in Litecoin. Um, also because, like, you know, people have their money on Binance. Binance doesn't support Lightning. When Binance supports Lightning, that make, might make a big difference. Well, so firstly, we need the exchanges to be supporting Lightning. I mean, right. that's a really important thing. And it's it's surprising more haven't. I've been impressed by what Kraken have done there. I think it's very cool. But it, you present an interesting use case there for Litecoin in that there's maximalists who think everything that isn't Bitcoin is a shitcoin. But if Litecoin is, I mean, it's basically the same protocol as Bitcoin, basically. It's similar. And I mean, like, you know, the, think, people aren't like investing in Litecoin. They're no. buying Litecoin and then dumping it on the other side because it has as much liquidity as Bitcoin. Well, what I'm, what I'm thinking is it's a pressure valve for Bitcoin. And is that such a bad thing? Kind of. These things have, have acted that way in the past. You know, I... I I don't think it's a bad thing. I certainly assign no moral judgment to that. Like, what do I care what people use? People are going to use the system that works best for them. You know, I I hope we can make Bitcoin that system, and Lightning is a part of that. Of course. And, but but while know, we wait. But while we wait, these things exist, and people will use them, and that's that's how it is. And, like, if you want to, you know, if you're a, a 
what's Jameson Lop call them now? Bitcoin Puritans. Uh, we're trying to, you know, every time you say something negative about Bitcoin maxis, a bunch of people show up and are like, ah, I like Bitcoin and why are you shitting on me? It's like, yeah, Scammer. you weren't who I was referring to. I was referring to the people who are like Puritans about it and scream that everything's a shit coin, not like you person who just likes Bitcoin. Like yeah. so every, every time you say Bitcoin maxis, people show up and get offended. So we're calling them Bitcoin Puritans now. Okay. So the ideological ones who... The, yes. Who... <laughs> Who won't see reason with anything. Right. What was that wallet? The um, the guy we met in New York where it's got Bitcoin, Litecoin, Monero. Cake. Cake. Yeah. Mm. So there's an interesting argument for a wallet like Cake where you've, you've got your Bitcoin balance, you've got your Monero balance, you've got your Litecoin. Fees are high on Bitcoin, but if you can just switch switch some of that, you know, auto-trade that into Litecoin, send your transaction or receive it and auto-switch it back. And, you know, if you want to do a private transaction, you can switch it into Monero and do it. There is an argument for that. I mean, I'm... The coolest thing about that wallet is that you can buy gift cards with Monero with no KYC. Very cool. Mm. So you can actually buy, like, real-life things with no KYC. Yeah. Mm. That's nice. And, uh, you know, it's a cool it's a cool wallet. This, I've seen it. I've used it. And they sponsored oh. the show for a bit. But um, I, I can... You know, I'm... I'm tired of the ideological fights. It's tough. After yeah. six, seven years, it's like, oh, please. It's just annoying, yeah. Yeah, and, you know, I come down to use cases. If someone wants to use it, it has a use case. Yeah. Yeah, and, you know, I, I, I really hope we can build out Bitcoin to be that compelling for everything. You know, I don't... But in the meantime, but like, in the meantime, they exist and they're going to get used and whatever. And, and Litecoin is never going to be number one. It's never going to overtake Bitcoin. There's no threat in that no. scenario. I've always, I've always had a soft spot for Lightning. Uh, so I like Coin anyway. I mean, I like Charlie Lee a lot. I think he's a great dude. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, I don't. Again, I assign no moral judgment to people using whatever system they want to use that that works for them. You know, I think if if you're if you're a Bitcoin puritan and you get mad that people are using Litecoin, fix Bitcoin. Yeah, that's on you. Yeah. Like that's you don't get to be be mad about people using Ethereum or, or Litecoin or whatever. Go improve Bitcoin. Go spend your time and energy doing something other than tweeting. Stop, and stop just being mad all day, right. every day. <laughs> this show is brought to you by BitCasino. Now, BitCasino was established in 2013 and is the world's first licensed Bitcoin casino. It is trusted by tens of thousands of players worldwide, and they not only have cutting-edge security, but they offer fast withdrawals and VIP experiences that money can't buy. BitCasino also has over 2,800 games and tournaments for you to try out. And with their 24-7 live chat support, you can always get help if needed. Now, if you want to find out more about BitCasino, the first Bitcoin casino to win an EGR award, head over to bitcasino.io, which is B-I-T-C-A-S-I-N-O dot I-O. And please remember to gamble responsibly. Next up today, we have Unchained. Now, events exchanges and traditional banks over the last year have been an important reminder of how critical it is for you to take control of your private keys. But listen, I know for some of you, this can be daunting, which is why our friends at Unchained offer a personalized concierge onboarding service. Now, I've personally been through the process and have now set up the vaults for my football team, Rail Bedford. And okay, I've got a personal recommendation here. The multi-sig solution which Unchained have created is so easy to use. They also ship you the required devices and walk you through this step by step so you understand exactly how the vaults work. After you set up, Unchained continues to provide you with regular support to help you get comfortable with controlling your keys. 
Now, if you've been putting off taking control of your Bitcoin wealth, Unchained's concierge onboarding is a simple way to get started. So book your onboarding today at unchained.com forward slash what Bitcoin did, which is U-N-C-H-A-I-N-E-D dot com forward slash what Bitcoin did. And at the checkout, you can get $50 off with the promo code what Bitcoin did. Also today, we have Wasabi who I am using to keep my Bitcoin private. Now, Wasabi is the easiest way for you to send and receive Bitcoin privately. And even for non-technical people like me, it is effortless and it provides privacy by default. With Wasabi, there is no minimum amount, so you can start coin joining straight away. And Wasabi users make coin join transactions together with BTC Pay and Trezor users. And BTC Pay server users can make payments in coin join, which saves on fees and is a privacy improvement. Also, Wasabi have just dropped a new feature. Now, Trezor Suite users can make coin joins directly on the hardware wallet, which is obviously very cool. Now, if you want to find out more, please head over to wasabiwallet.io, which is W-A-S-A-B-I-W-A-L-L-E-T dot I-O. We, obviously, we had Segway a few years ago, and then we've had Taproot. Is there another big update? Discuss being discussed? You know? Um. Yeah, I'm... Probably not the person for that question, but I think, I think it's going to be covenants. More than I am. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> covenants. Um, I, I think the next, you know, I, there's been a lot of attempts at addressing, you know. You should explain covenants yeah, again. We covered I, it before. I'm realizing I should probably go back and do that. Um, uh, yeah, so there's... Covenants is like a broad term, and there's really several different use cases that I think are relevant and can be accomplished in different ways. And so that's kind of where the like the covenants discussion gets muddled by like, are we like just doing covenants? Like, yeah, we're doing like these set of use cases, right? Um, so there's a few things. There's like I mentioned already this kind of like concept of multi-party UTXO ownership, and like how do we get to a world where uh, multiple people can collaboratively own a UTXO and like dynamically create lightning channels or or do payments, but like not all have to have their own separate set of UTXOs. Um, and so that's one important thing where like more flexibility in the the Bitcoin script format can enable that much more efficiently, right? Where like uh, specifically, where if we have a UTXO and like the three of us have collaborative ownership of this, and we each have some some right to some portion of the balance of that, some balance within that UTXO, um, and then that transaction output, uh, then having the ability to say have that UTXO, but have the Bitcoin script in that UTXO uh, restrict the exact format and the exact details of the next transactions. Um, and you can't really directly do that in Bitcoin today. You you can uh, have a, a public key which has to sign the next transaction. Obviously, I mean that's how that's how Bitcoin works. Um, but the best you can really do then is you like create a multi-sig three of three, and then like we pre-sign a transaction like Lightning, and then like we store that transaction, and like if we want to update it, we create a new one. But then we have to have some mechanism to revoke the old one. Um, so it gets very yeah. complicated, and this one lightning is very complicated. But if we can say have that Bitcoin script format explicitly say like the next transaction has to look exactly like this, or has to have exactly these things set, then that enables a lot more flexibility to do these kinds of protocols. Um, similarly, the that 
goal of like being able to restrict exactly what's set in the next transaction is useful for a lot of these kind of large custodial uh, enterprises who have like maybe potentially large heart wallets or certainly very large cold wallets um, where they want to say like, okay, I have all this money in my cold wallet. If that cold, if those private keys get hacked, um, even if that, even if those private keys get hacked, the next transaction that is created spending that money, my cold wallet, spending my cold wallet must still pay to here or must still, um, you, you can know, like whitelist have, addresses. Kind right. Of thing. Basically. Yeah. Um, and there's, so there's all kinds off. of variations on that design, but that kind of thing, uh, could be enforced on chain. A, so, a predetermined set of rules for whatever the next transaction is. Right. Yeah. Okay. So it hops it to another address first. Right. Which is predefined to, okay. Cause that, that kind of makes sense. Yeah. So there, there's all kinds of, and there's, there's a million variations of that. You could have like, you know, pre hops it to something, but then like, if, uh, then you have some additional time to cancel that and bring it to some other address. So like there's all kinds of different schemes people have for that, but potentially useful improvements to security of cold wallets. So there's all kinds of these kind of overlapping use cases for this fundamental concept of, I want to restrict what the transaction spending this output looks like. Um, but exactly what is available to those restrictions and in a soft fork to Bitcoin, like which things are you able to restrict and how are you able to restrict them and yada yada is a huge discussion um, and has a ton of back and forth. You know, there's like uh, Jeremy proposed his Opt CTV design. There's several other designs. James is now working on this Opt Vault stuff. James. James O'Byrne. Okay. Um, Jer- Jeremy went through a rough time with that. He did. He did. Um, yeah. I mean, I think it, it was hard, right? Because he, like, he wanted to move this stuff forward sooner rather than later. And I think a lot of other people were still, were, were busy with other stuff. Like, it, it, one big issue with proposing a soft fork in Bitcoin is you really need a lot of kind of the technical community to weigh in. And the technical community tends to be a bunch of people who are very busy with 20 projects because there's so much shit to fix in Bitcoin. Right. <laughs> right. And so, you know, he wanted to to make forward progress and felt like he was kind of like going to people and being like, here, look at this. Like, do you think we should do this? And people were like, eh, maybe I don't have time to look at that, but eh. And so he felt like he was kind of like, not really making progress and not really kind of getting the the kind of critical feedback he wanted. Um, and then, yeah, he got very frustrated with that, mm. understandably. Um, but I think, uh, you know, the design also wasn't super composable with existing. It wasn't, you know, it was kind of pretty generic. And I think it, it missed some of, so like now uh, James O'Byrne is trying to push for like basically op vault, which is similar to this old op T love proposal. But then James also wants CTV, which was Jeremy's thing uh, as a part of op vault. So like, basically you can compose the two of them together. Um, yeah. There's a lot of discussions on it. Can I tell you something I want? And I'm sure I'm not the only person who does this, right? When I do a big Bitcoin transaction, say if I had to send Danny, I don't know, $20,000, sometimes I'm like, I'm going to send you $5 first. Can you just confirm you got it? And then I've still got the same copy paste and I do it. I would love to be able to have a wallet or something whereby I, like over a certain amount, say it's over $1,000, all it does is sends $5 first, 
I phone up Danny. Danny got it. He said yes. And then I says yes. And he says the rest of the transaction. I don't have to actually create two transactions. Just does it in one. Yeah. Is that something that a wallet would do? A wallet could do that. I mean, there's probably better protocols for that than this, right? Like you don't have to actually do a transaction in order to accomplish that. You just need some protocol by which your wallet communicates directly with Danny's wallet. And Danny can see like a, a thing at the top that says like, you know, uh, someone's trying to send you, you know, $100,000, like, it looks like this is correct, like, yes, go, and then the wallets could communicate. There's there's room for this kind of protocol. It doesn't have to be a, a right. an on-chain thing. Because I'm sure I'm not the only, I, I bet you've done that. Uh, yeah, no, I totally know what you mean. Like, yeah. you're still nervous the second time. Yeah, It'd still be nice if you almost sent the $5, you got a pop-up box saying, did this confirm, you just say yes, and the rest goes away. Yeah, because yeah. It, I, I know I can't be the only one. No, you're, this is a common thing. Yeah, but but why is no one going to fix this? Come on. Come on, <laughs> Yeah, I... <laughs> Yeah, you know, I think Bitcoin wallets, Bitcoin wallets tend to also be similarly overworked, and and like there's, you know, Bitcoin wallets, it, it's a tough game, right? Yeah. Like you, you historically haven't made any money on it, right? It's not like you get a cut of the transaction fees. With Lightning, you you might, so maybe with Lightning you can get, you have a better, more compelling business model. Um, which means, but historically, you don't make very much money on the wallets. You have a small team. Um, probably, you know, the only real way you make money is by like selling shit coins. Like you sell Bitcoin, but then really you make more money by selling shit coins. So you integrate some brokerage service into your wallet, and then you have to add support for all these shit coins because that's where you make the money. Um, and so none of them have time to do these kinds of features. Um, you know, some of the more like uh, Ethereum specific ones have a little bit larger teams. They've raised VC money. Yeah. Um, they have bigger business models, but they also have even more complexity because supporting Ethereum and a million contracts is even harder. And like, you have to make that secure somehow and that's not easy. Um, so historically, Bitcoin wallets have had a real tough go of like getting enough resources to build out compelling features like that. Um Especially, you know, if you want this kind of feature, you really need it to be a standard adopted by a lot of wallets. And so at one point, a few years back, we did try to create a like wallet standards group. Um, and we had one meeting and it was great. We had a lot of really great discussion around all kinds of standards we wanted to build. And then we all went home and no one ever looked at it again or any of the things <laughs> we agreed to. Typical. Um, and because no one did follow up, I didn't have time to do follow up. Everybody else was super busy. It, you know, it's mostly on me. I didn't do any follow up, but like I was busy. It's all um, your format. Yeah, um, but this this is the kind of thing where like I really, you know, we really need to revive that. Yeah, and and you know maybe we will with Lightning. Lightning's even worse. There's so many different overlapping protocols in Lightning, and everyone wants their Lightning wallet to support like uh, zero amount invoices and Bolt Twelve and Allen URL and. You know, now they want like Noster Wallet Connect and they want, you know, there's all these different protocols and there's like this huge proliferation and it's becoming a nightmare. I mean, it's like, oh, uh, your Lightning Wallet here, can you scan this QR code? No, it didn't work. Oh, it, it you know, it, I don't support that protocol. Can you select this other protocol in your wallet to receive? It's nightmarish UX. I mean, um, I very, very rarely have it in a base chain transaction where, you know, an address isn't supported. It can right. very occasionally you have it come up, but it's very rare. It does happen on Lightning a lot. It's frighteningly bad UX. Yeah. Um, and so it, it's something we need to fix. But yeah, so, you know, like every time you add one of these protocols to this compatibility matrix, it, the UX gets like an order of magnitude worse oh. because all of a sudden you have like, 
Like no normal user is going to like scan a QR code and be like, oh, it gave me an error. What do I do? Like, that's awful. Like, what? You just give up and you go use Litecoin, really. Um, So, you know, keeping that compatibility matrix down is something I worry a lot about. Um, Maybe Litecoin should have just been Lightning. (laughs) Just create wallets that jumps between the two. Yeah, I mean, the problem is like when you you want to do like an atomic swap into Litecoin, you probably have to do an on-chain transaction in Bitcoin. Right. And now you're now you're fucked again. Yeah. Um, but but yeah, I mean, so uh, there needs. I I think there is. You know, we'll see what happens over the next few years. But I, I think there really is a lot of room to revive some of that kind of like wallet standards work. Um, we'll get on if with someone it. Has a, <laughs> if someone wants to PM this and someone wants an awesome thing to do for Bitcoin, someone should run a wallet standards body. We can revive, what do we call it? We called it send with a three. You can revive send and you can have another meeting. Go on, Danny. Um, this is not a job for me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but some, if someone wants to do that, I think that, that would actually be really huge and you'd be able to push stuff like this. You'd be able to really cut down the compatibility matrix and lightning, improve things. Um, I think there's a lot of room. I, I think we might end up doing something similar in the lightning world, not now, but... Um, some folks on our team might try to to push something there. It's just a matter of finding somebody who has the time and the motivation to really do it. Um, but I don't think this needs a hell of a lot of this needs more organizational work. It needs like someone to wrangle people and pick a date and like book a conference room somewhere that you can like sit in. Like it doesn't need you know getting those people together. They'll like have good conversations. It really just needs someone to like just do the like organizational and like push it, you know? Mm. How are we doing on the recruitment of devs at the moment? And also adding to that, the loss of core devs over the last year. (laughs) Yeah. um, That's a good question. I I think, uh, you know, lightning's doing very well on the lightning side. uh, You know, lightning labs raised, year ago maybe mm-hmm. uh, and they were able to you know LD was pretty short staffed before that and i think now you know they were able to hire a lot more people to work on LD after that raise and those people have finally kind of ran you know it takes people a while to ramp up uh around a similar timeline us on the ldk team we hired three more so we're now seven full-time engineers on ldk wow. plus some other folks doing our huge grant program and yada yada um the Core Lightning team, I think, also hired around the similar time. Uh, I don't know where they are now. I know some of their folks that they hired were doing like research projects. Um, I think Eclair is similarly doing fairly well. I think they did a raise not too long ago as well. So like on the Lightning side, we're doing well. Like all the different groups maintaining one of the four big Lightning implementations uh, has either raised over the last year or got more budget or whatever. Um, and has you know hired for it, and, and everyone seems to seems to be doing great. Um, so I don't worry about that. On the Bitcoin Core side, you know it's complicated. I, I think it, it's useful to talk about Bitcoin Core in kind of a historical perspective. So, you know, from you know there, there were a bunch of new core devs in late 2010, early 2011. That's when Bitcoin first made it to the front page of Slashdot. It made it to the front front page of Slashdot like three times, I think, late 2010, early 2011. Mm-hmm. And so that got a lot of geeks into Bitcoin. That's why you see a lot of people who kind of like heard about Bitcoin first in early 2011. It was mostly either directly or indirectly via Slashdot. Um, what was it for you? Uh, I, I heard about it via a podcast I watched regularly where they'd heard about it on Slashdot. Right, okay. So, 
um, indirectly or directly, that it kind of started filtering through certain geek communities in early 2011. Um, and so you saw a bunch of kind of core devs get involved throughout 2011. Um, and, you know, slowly more and more, but not a huge growth through like all the block size wars. And, you know, you know, there continued to be some, but kind of a lot of the kind of core folks who have been working on Bitcoin Core for a long time worked on it from 2011, 2012, 2010 through the block size wars. And that was a stressful period. Obviously, that mm-hmm. was not not a fun few years, but everyone, I think, working on Bitcoin Core at the time felt it was a little existential, right? It was like this thing that you'd been working on for multiple years by that point, and like you wanted to see it succeed. And so like you were going to fight like hell to, you know, have the outcome you wanted through the block size wars. And that's why they were so stressful and it was so existential and there was a lot of angst around it. After... Segwit and after Segwit 2x kind of face planted, um, a, a lot of us had a lot of like side projects we wanted to work on, either Bitcoin or non Bitcoin. But you know, just a lot of us had like other Bitcoin projects we wanted to build that weren't necessarily like working on Bitcoin Core. Um, you know, whether it be you know Miniscript and Descriptors, or whether it be like Bitcoin Fiber and eventually Stratum V2, or whether it be Lightning stuff or whatever. So a lot of people kind of stepped back a little bit, and that created a vacuum, right? You had a lot of longtime contributors step back around a similar time, and uh, at the same time, a lot of new folks wanted to get into Bitcoin Core and started contributing, but there wasn't uh, a large kind of longtime contributor base to like help mentor and help really you know build that out, and so that created a lot of problems in Core, uh, kind of in the year or two or three after. Segwit and after the block size wars kind of resolved. And that, I think that took a long time to filter through. Like it took, again, because you had that kind of like sucking out of old folks who knew the code base well and could help mentor, um, it was hard to grow the new talent. There was a lot of new talent coming in that wanted to grow and it was really hard to help them grow. Um, and so that that really created a lot of problems for a while. I think over the last few years, that new talent has figured it out. Um, and so we see, you know, great new people working on core. Um, Gloria is now a maintainer, I think. Um, uh, I'm blanking on names. Um, and someone's going to yell at me for not including, for not mentioning them. <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, Did I meet Gloria in London? I met someone in London. Maybe. Yeah. Um, but I think I think that that talent that got involved either then or not long thereafter has has finally figured it out and finally learned the code base well enough and either found mentors or just figured it out on their own or whatever has been working on it long enough to really grok what's going on and add really valuable contribution. At the same time, some other older folks have gotten more involved again. Peter Will has gotten more involved again. Cool and. I think a few other people have gotten more involved again as well. Um, and so that has also helped. And so I'm not that worried about it. You know, I, I obviously like the Craig Wright drama and that that crap where it's just like just frivolous garbage, but like frivolous garbage that's, you know, still legal threats and harassment's not not great to deal with, right? Um, especially, I mean, you know, courts are not well suited to dealing with someone who's just going to flat out lie in all of their 
you know, correspondence with the court. Like they're just not well suited to handle that. They expect some level of honesty. Um, and so working through the like, no, that's a lie. No, that's a lie. No, that's a lie in court just takes a lot of resources and a lot of time. Um, and so, you know, those kinds of things do stress out some developers and also like, you know, the Bitcoin Puritan crowd is obnoxious sometimes. Um, and it's like over stupid crap, you know, it's not, it's not very often that you see, you know, I, I think there was, there was some interesting debate around like taproot activation. Um, you know, I wasn't a fan of a lot of the takes, but at least it, they were takes that like had some semblance of like a, a strong argument behind yeah. it, an argument you could stand behind. And then there's a lot of like Bitcoin Puritan crowd who get mad about like a variable name change in Bitcoin core. And you're just like, how do you expect anyone to want to work on this? Yeah. Or, or you have Bitcoin Puritan crowd running around screaming about how no one should work on, on Bitcoin core. The code base should be frozen and no one should touch it again for the next two decades. Never mind that there's like, you know, some denial of service security fix in every release because like this stuff is really freaking hard and people are still figuring it out, you know, 15 years later or whatever yeah. it is now. And so like dealing with that kind of crap is really annoying. Uh, and so it, it's understandable that there's people who kind of, uh, flame out, let's say, and just yeah. like get frustrated and, and don't want to work on it. Um, but at the same time, I am encouraged by uh, the kind of new, newfound enthusiasm that I think, uh, I, and I don't really work on core anymore. So it's hard, you know, I, I am a little bit of an outsider, but at least the folks that I talk to who do seem to have like a, seem to have and also find kind of this newfound enthusiasm that exists within the project uh, that we haven't seen since, you know, maybe before the block size wars, where there's really just like new blood who gets it, who's excited about Bitcoin again, and isn't just like old and jaded and annoyed about like everything. Um, <laughs> so I, I think, yeah. I think Bitcoin Core is doing fine. Um, yeah. Do we want to talk about mining decentralization and yeah. Like update me on Stratum V2. Yeah. Um, we had the brains guys on. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, they probably know more than me. Uh, I don't, man, I don't have time to work on anything anymore. It's awful. Um, but uh, yeah, they, I mean the, the Stratum V2, they, they released the reference implementation yep. in alpha or beta or whatever. Um, so that's super exciting. Uh, more work to come there, but, like this is really critical stuff. I mean, like if you're if you're a developer, they they too have very few resources. Doubly so now. You know, some some of the folks who were like working on it half time or whatever got cut because of the the price uh, price going down. Their company has said like, ah, you can't work on that half time anymore or or whatever. Um, so if you're like a developer and you want to have, I mean, it's like kind of the most important thing in Bitcoin, like ignore all this like lightning crap and Bitcoin core and like future soft forks and whatever. Like if we can't get mining decentralization, right, we should just give up. So why is it taking like, so long? You and I spoke about this three and a half years ago. It's been a while. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, maybe I, longer. It might've been four and a half years ago. I mean, the pot's been going nearly six years. The pot's been going for too long. How long have you been? <laughs> <Hey>, behave. <laughs> uh, when did you start? Three and a uh, half years ago? Four years ago, maybe. When was the show? The Blue it Mad. was February 2019. Wow. So yeah, the, the show had been going a year and a half. Yeah. Just before I started. Oh, yeah. Hold on. That's over four years. Mm. The fuck have you been doing, man? <laughs> yeah, I've had four years. <laughs> Working on lightning, man. Um, yeah, I, I think, you know, it, it took us, 
you know, I, I drafted like kind of an initial version of some software, super alpha. Um, and then the brains guys were like, ah, oh, your protocol sucks. You don't know shit about mining. And they were basically right. Um, <laughs> And so, you know, we retooled it, we incorporated the ideas from it, we like, you know, designed the Shadow B2 stuff together. Um, and uh, then I got pulled off on Lightning stuff, started working full-time on that, and then we really struggled for a while to hire, you know, we wanted to, like, you know, we have a grant budget, and we were like, we want to fund someone to implement this. This is, like, really key work, and we were, like, loud about it on Twitter. Uh, and it took us, like, six months or a year before we got anyone who even, like, you know, was seriously committed and wanted to do it. Um, so that took a while, and then, you know, people had to ramp up on the protocol, you know, that they didn't know the protocol had just been kind of invented out of whole cloth. So they had to ramp up on that. They had to actually go impl start implementing stuff. And then of course, you know, implementing alpha software, all right, it took me, you know, two months or whatever to implement some alpha quality crap that, that could spit out a block um, versus implementing like not just production quality stuff, but stuff that could run on firmware on a device, um, which is a whole different, a whole different world. Uh, it takes a while, um, but that's also a project that does need more resources. I mean, we talk about like, you know, does Bitcoin Core have enough developers? Stratum V2 does not have enough developers and needs more developers and is really fucking important. Um, I mean, and, and we're happy to fund more people. Like, if people want to work, if there's developers who are like, I want to work on Stratum V2, I want to make Bitcoin serial, ser bleh, seriously decentralized and make it, like, improve the key you know, property of Bitcoin that is mining decentralization provides a censorship resistance. If I want to make Bitcoin censorship resistant again, you know, if you want to work on Stratum V2, we will fund you. We will give you a check. Yeah. So, like, so how many, grant. how many people do you need and how long should it take? Um, so I think there's maybe two working kind of or maybe one working full-time, maybe two. We had a third who was half-time, and then there's some other contributors. Um, there are overlapping pieces. You know, you, you always want to be careful. There's this famous um, uh, thing in software engineering where it's like, uh, if a project reaches a certain point, every new person you add to the project slows it down. Basically, it's like a classic management thing. Yeah. Like, you know, if you, you have a team and they're not like finishing it fast enough, you add another person, you're just going to slow them down. So you want to be careful about that. But there's other pieces that that can happen and and lots of, of work to, to be done. Um, so, I mean, I don't know. Uh, another one or two would be great, I think. Um, is, what is it, a year of work to get it finished? Two years? Yeah, I mean, there's different there's different pieces, but I think it's probably closer to a year out than two years out. It just um, needs to happen. It really needs to happen. Yeah, um, yeah. Well, I hope I hope it does. Matt, great to see you again. Let's <clears throat> leave it. Me. Did we do a show in between in remote during COVID? I don't have know we, how many times we had that on. I, I, I kind of thought we did. No, just one. Fuck. Mm. Four years is too long. It's been too long Let's now. Let's not leave it four years next time. All right. I don't know when I'll be in SF next, but... Uh, <laughs> if, well, uh, sometime I'm in New York or something. Yeah, we'll make it work. But it's good to see you, man. And thanks for everything you do. Um, and it's always been uh, good to to follow you and see you move around. It, oh, you know why you know why I got confused? Because of when I interviewed the, the three people up here... Chain code, Chain code yeah. yeah, I think that probably threw me. Mm, um, yeah, but yeah, look, good to see you. Keep doing your thing. Anything we can do to help, you let us know. And uh, yeah, thanks. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks, Ben. Enjoy the conference. Yeah.
All right, what do you think of that? Do you enjoy that? So good to get Matt back on the show. Matt's so smart, and also he's just very level-headed. And you, I think you tend to find this. While we have some wild people on Twitter shouting all kinds of stuff, I tend to find with these developers who've been around developing Bitcoin for quite some time, they are very rational, very rational thinkers about Bitcoin. So love Matt, love having him back on the show, and it's great to sit down with him and talk about where Bitcoin is headed and some of the fallout from this ordinal stuff. Okay, so let me know what you think. You can drop me an email, hello at whatbitcoindid.com. Apart from that, I'm going to get out there, I'm going to go enjoy the sunshine. All right, see you all later in the week.